Welcome to the Dash Podcast. Helping us bridge the gap today is Mr. Brian Setzer, who is the principal of the RPK Group in Maryland. They are an innovative company that is helping educators to design and innovate the business models that they have or new innovations with consulting and implementation practices. Now, Brian, you have a just from the title of your company and your personal title on LinkedIn as an entrepreneur sparked my interest off jump. So can you tell me what an entrepreneur is? Absolutely. And thanks for the opportunity today. So, you know, you have a lot of teachers and a lot of educators who tell stories about teaching to stuffed animals when they were a kid and to kind of practicing being a teacher when they were really young. In, in my bedroom, it was stuffed animals, uh, army men, uh, comic book Avengers. In other words, from a very young age, I was innovating. I was mm. thinking about how to build new designs and new models so that people could get excited about them. They could have wonderful experiences. We could scale them with other people. And so that never really stopped for me, whether it was as a student and, you know, serving in just about every new idea that was possible at a school, whether it was, you know, standing up um, things that the uh, e-commerce classes did, or whether it was, you know, working as a captain on various sports teams and doing very different things around how we promoted solidarity or promoted teamwork. These were very early dispositions. So when I went into education, uh, I found that education had a lot of status quo kind of development. You know, you would be trained as a teacher and then maybe if you had enough experience, you would move on as an administrator. And then if you became an effective administrator, then there was a route or a pathway to learn how to do that. And I rejected that from almost jump. I thought that um, there were multiple ways to become an effective teacher. There were multiple ways to become an effective leader. And so just about everything I experienced was very entrepreneurial, meaning that I was, you know, involved in the launch of new ideas, helping bring them to the schools or bring them to the districts I was involved in. I was one of the first teacher trainers in the country to help teachers learn how to leverage laptops for learning. I was one of the first principals in the country to uh, stand up a 21st century high school. So I was always on the front edge inside of the system, right? Mm. And finally, one step before superintendent, I was a chief quality officer at Iredell State School Schools, and my main job was bringing innovative ideas to the school district and then kind of figuring out how to uh, implement them. Uh, with principals and lead teachers. So whether it was one-to-one computers or whether it was thinking about different pedagogical practices in the classroom or project-based learning, again, all of it was entrepreneurial, right? And I decided in 2007 that I wanted to actually test that at scale. So I became the second CEO at North Carolina Virtual Public School, and this was a a new space where we were providing supplemental online learning to schools uh, and teachers and students across the state of North Carolina. When I came into that role, we had maybe a thousand students statewide, 23 teachers. When I left four years later, we had 90,000 students. We were in 12 states and four countries. Wow. And so, you know, I was learning how to be an entrepreneur uh, in a new context as the CEO. 
Mm. Well, that got me noticed, as you might imagine, by people who wanted that to happen in their states or wanted yeah. to th- think about how to do blended learning or competency-based learning. And so one of the things that happens when you're on the front edge of technology is that a lot of people are thinking about how to leverage it, right? So mm. you might have people that are trying to do startup country, companies, or you might have people that uh, you know, want to learn how to be a coder, or you might have people that uh, want to stand up some sort of organization that supports uh, the future of learning. So two revolutions recognized that. They hired me as their first partner ever that was outside of the founding partners. And I worked with 22 states and internationally to help bring education, design, products, and services to life. And it was there that I thought about the term edupreneur because so much of entrepreneurship gets labeled in the media as sort of feast or famine, right? Like you either, <laughs> you either do something great or you pivot or you launch another startup. Yeah. Well, edupreneur is, is really about applying entrepreneurial skills in a continuous learning environment, a continuous improvement process. And so that's the nice mix of bringing learning to the entrepreneurial space. And now yeah. at RPK, I get to do it with more universities. I get to do it with nonprofit and for-profit companies. And, you know, that's a little swing through that term in my career. Yeah, that's that's it. And I think that's a beautiful term. I remember the first time that I heard entrepreneur and was just, it kind of made the world flat in a way for me because I had always thought about it, you know, again, like yourself, you know, entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur is hard. Um, Just start something from scratch or start up company type things. The entrepreneur, you kind of have an, an engine behind you. You know, I've worked with a, a charter school and helping to build their guidance department. And we've actually started using virtual SC, which is South Carolina virtual classes that they can take, probably similar to the North Carolina school. Um, but the entrepreneur, that, that's another kind of um, paradigm shift. I think that's, that's a very powerful one to look at education in another way. Because as I've been a consultant for about two, three years now, and just looking at it and learning at it, you really do have to have an entrepreneurial spirit while you're in education, while you're talking about innovation. There's um, a video by a man, I can't think of his name right now. He talked about how education has pretty much stayed the same for the past 100 years. Everything else has has changed. And um, I think it was Andrew Yang was, was saying something about College has gotten two and a half times more expensive, but the value has not increased two and a half times amount of that. So being on that front edge of innovation, uh, you could talk a little bit about when you started, but um, talk about the, the rise you've seen in that innovation in education as well. Well, I think, I think a couple of things are happening. I think that... You know, another term that I'm seeing on the rise is teacherpreneur, where you're seeing more and more educators who, you know, they might do one to five years in a classroom, but now they're working as virtual teachers. They're working as uh, virtual designers. They spend time providing content expertise to tech companies. And so my daughter is a teacher, right? And very early on, uh, when she was finishing her master's, which is this year, and she's working in you know, long-term subbing environments and also uh, tutoring, I got her right away into virtual tutoring. I got her right away into online learning because I want her to be, you know, pardon the expression, but like a a five-tool player, like a baseball player Mm -hmm. for education, right? Where she can 
flex to face to face. She can flex to virtual. She can be uh, an assessment advisor or a tutor. And I think it's indicative of kind of the gig economy or the flex bird economy that we're in. Uh, if you're willing to hustle and you're willing to think about, you know, that shift, that's really come about in the last three to five years. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, pioneers like myself who kind of pushed the envelope early or were way too early, uh, got told by multiple people, you know, if you don't do five years here, if you don't do 10 years here, you'll never be a superintendent or a president of a college. Well, guess what? I don't want to be either one of those things. And I'm enjoying carving out my own niche into how I help people and support them. And I think teaching and learning, training, particularly with the advent of AI and machine learning, we're going to need more educators who are flexperts and can, you know, write digital personas and help those digital machines do their work. And so I'm very encouraged about the, the shifts I'm seeing. Yeah. So when, when did you get started? Like you said, as, as a pioneer, when did you get started and, and how did that idea come about to um, think about one-to-one tech tools and, and uh, entrepreneur with, with I, I see your, your link says unthink school to rethink learning. How, how did that idea get sparked? Well, my greatest strength is I'm a learner. Uh, I will simply outlearn you. So if you, and I have a project together or, you know, we have a new space or a new problem to solve. Uh, very few people will outlearn me. And so the, the issue there is when you talk about how you get started there, I've always been curious, right? So if I'm interested in something, if I see a opportunity to make a wow experience, I'm going to learn everything I can about it. And there's going to be people that say, well, you know, I've had 20 years, Uh, teaching experience and what can you tell me? And I'm like, well, you've had 20 years teaching experience in the same year, meaning that you, 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 you started out and got some mentors and thought you had this thing figured out. The difference between me and you is I've never considered myself finished. And so I spend a lot of time learning and getting smarter, particularly using tech to do so. So, you know, I came about in an age where the first people to use uh, cell phones for learning are the first people to use tablets for curating their uh, learning list or their playlist. Um, I just think and do differently, right? So I don't, I don't consider my intelligence to be supreme. I consider my network to be really smart. And that's a second key where I've surrounded myself with people smarter than me that do different things than me. And so I've got several generalists uh, expertise areas, but also have deep specialist expertise because of how I leverage that network. And so it really started as a teacher and as a coach. I'll give you a story that a lot of people just don't do is, you know, I played high school and college soccer. You know, I could have walked in and coached a young soccer team and said, I know how to do this. Well, I didn't. I worked seven camps every summer for my first six years as a coach. And guess what? I worked camps in the ACC. I learned from the best coaches in the country. So I brought that stuff back to my game and, you know, no accident that we were a very successful program. Well, it's the same philosophy when you talk about technology, blended learning, competency-based learning, AI. You read, you learn, you meet people, you network, and you harness those ideas. Wow. That's, that's powerful. That, that way of learning, I think, you know, sometimes it can get lost as an educator. You forget that you also need to be educated and, and that we teach being lifelong learners, but sometimes forget that. 
we're still learning this process too. And people don't always like change, right? We like to stay in that comfort zone. How were you able to, and even to this point now, how are you able to position um, your services or, or help educators in schools understand the pain point that you're solving with, um, with the information that you're providing? Well, it's tough work. Um, the first thing I would say is I tend to think of everybody on the sort of, you know, Rogers adoption curve, right? So if you've never seen that curve before, I'll share it to the screen and then the podcast listeners can kind of, you know, see it visually through the narrative. But I'm a, I'm an innovator, a bleeding innovator, and I represent you know, 2.5% of the population, right? So the, the likelihood for me to find somebody like me is low, but it does happen, right? Like I do encounter teachers, principals, chancellors, chief innovation officers who are also innovators. When that happens, my job is easy because these are also people that are curious, disposed to learning, et cetera. What I often work more with is the early adopters. These are people that are outstanding leaders. They've been appointed by their team to move an initiative. And they actually need very low coaching from me. Often they need nudges or they need tools or a process. And so at the end of the day, it's a change management exercise, right? Like I find somebody like yourself who's trying to expose a, a listening audience to innovative ideas and education. And we have, a, we have a conversation and there's a growth mindset and there's solutions of behavior. And then they take it and make it their own. And early adopters are fun yeah. to work with. And they probably, you know, they probably represent 25% of my portfolio. But as you can see with the remaining curve, the rest of those folks, whether you're talking about early majority, late majority, or laggards, very challenging. And here's the thing that I think a lot of innovators miss. You need them all. You, you need wow. laggards to tell you uh, whether something is going to be legally a problem. You, you need laggards to tell you whether this is going to be too disruptive to the culture. And when you hear that, you have to, the, the charge as a designer, as a facilitator, to make meaning of that, to get these people in different camps or bucket, buckets. For instance, I don't put a laggard on an innovation team but I do put them on a, on a final editing team so that before we go to market or before we go out to a school district, they can poke holes in what I've designed. And a lot of times they're very sharp in what they do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you kind of got your contrarian in a way that makes sense. So within your own team, within your personal team, you have these different phases. You have certain innovators that help you come up with um, the solutions for schools, but you also have that are, are that the contrarians to the ideas to make sure that you're giving a well-rounded product to whatever school you're working with. Is that correct? It, it, you're all over it. It's kind of like when you hear in the political spectrum, uh, we're going to offer college for free or we're going to offer community college for free. I actually think that we can get to that point, mm -hmm. but, just say, but just saying it will not get us there. There's a lot of design elements in that. And so how you do funding from your state or funding from your feds to make that happen, how you think about uh, the current higher ed system that 
you know, it's not just going to give that up tomorrow. There's a transition part of that. How you think about consolidating universities to make that happen. See, what I'm saying is uh, politicians, people, they, they love to say things like that, but you actually need all of these team members to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and that makes that makes a lot of sense. So in in your in your thinking or innovation process, what are the phases for this? Are, are, is every school or organization that you're working with, is it a new solution every time? Or is there, is there kind of a, a set list of a menu, uh, for lack of a better word, that, that you kind of have offered and then you fit what's in that menu to, um, and tailor it to the, the, the institution that you're working with? Well, I'm a big fan of Stanford D School, Stanford's design school. Okay. And so if you if you go to their website at Stanford D School, you will see that they have really built out um, design tools to lead people through a process, right? Mm -hmm. And to make sure that people understand a simple design protocol to kind of move them to action. Yeah. So an example would, example would be their process always starts with, uh, and I'll, I'll bring it up for you on the screen and then also talk to the listeners, but it always starts with empathy. So, so you, you, you can't serve an HBCU, you can't serve a school district in Detroit unless you understand their context, mm. period. Mm. So like you, so you've got to go in and, you know, in my in my experience, oftentimes the the white reformer from the outside is not going to be as valuable as if I sit down with that superintendent. We trade tactics, and then that superintendent is the one who leads the design process. So yes. you have to understand what where people are coming from, and that's the same whether you're serving schools in the country, schools in a city, uh, higher ed institutions that are as large as Ohio State are ones that are as small as Bennett College, right? Like you, you got to really understand their context. Now, once you do that, let's call it 30 days, you start to define some realities for them. Mm -hmm. Now, they can, they can accept or reject those realities, but here's the deal. If uh, somebody came and observed your family and my family for a month, they would point out bl blind spots that we're not seeing, yeah. right? They, they would say, now you... You say that you spend time with your kids. What I see is that you do this, <laughs> or you say that uh, you know you eat healthy. But what I see is this, right? So, so they would point out the difference between your strengths and your gaps, and that's what a great designer does. Okay. And the next thing they do is once they get you to agree on your gaps, well, let's ideate on solutions. Let's look at the problems to be solved. Who else is solving for that? So. If we find out that a school in inner city DC has a major problem with food security, well, maybe we need to design a food pantry. Maybe we need to think differently about how we educate and schedule our day so that kids are fed. You know, th those are small examples of like how you can look at these weaknesses and then start to prototype them. Now, mm -hmm. prototyping is, is the key. So let's say that, uh, you came into my life and you said, Brian, you've had an exercise goal for, uh, you know, last three years, dude, what's happening. And I said to you, look, either I'm going to do a prototype on an app, like a 5k, get off the couch, or I'm going to do a gym membership or whatever. But until I commit to eating less and exercise more, 
there's not going to be any new results. So when you run a prototype, you got to ask that school to look you in the eye and vice versa and say, let's try something for 90 days and do something different than what we've been doing before. And let's see what the test results are. Let's see what happens. Now, if you get momentum, that, that initiative moves. If you get people that say, well, man, this is hard work. It'll stay status quo. And if you get people that have no interest in carrying it forward, you'll get a protection environment of what's always been. So, I really try to select those early adopters and move them through this process. Wow. And, and it sounds like a, it's, that's a very methodical process that you go to and, and go through and you have to have that structure to make things work. I think that that helps take away. It's, it's, it's not a guesswork. It's not a, this is what I said. You know, we're going through and collaborating through this process to find the best solution for you. And, and I'm curious about some of those solutions you know, I think uh, in recent time, there's a, a Men of Color Summit at Clemson that they've been hosting the, the past few years with Mr. Gill, who started in, um, in at Akron University. And some of the conversations that we've had is, you know, it, it, we focus a lot on urban education and, and fixing urban schools. But in South Carolina, where I live, it's mostly a rural state in 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 kind of to put you on the spot a little bit with rural solutions that you may have. What, what are some of the problems that you've seen in a, a rural K-12 institution in, in uh, an example of kind of how you've worked through that process to, to help bridge some of the rural gaps in education? Yeah, I think um, three things that often come up as barriers in rural institutions, whether they're K-12 or higher ed, First thing they're going to say is that they don't have enough resources, okay? Now, I akin that to uh, any family, any uh, business, any restaurant, resources are always a constraint. Yeah. So you need to have so solutions for those resources, whatever, whatever design you're going to do. The second thing they're going to talk about is their talent. Like, they may have small numbers of talented people, but they're not attracting some of the stronger talent to rural areas. So oftentimes they have a talent gap or deficit, right, that they've got to solve for. Now, this is talked about in a variety of ways. People will often say, what are you talking about, big city? We have talent here. Well, maybe you do. But what we're really talking about is the capacity of that talent. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of times in a rural organization or institution, you might have the chief technology officer serving as a teacher. You might have them also moonlighting as a technician, uh, the infrastructure is often a real problem, right? And then on top of that, uh, a lot of the new and modern infrastructure pieces can often have hard time getting out to rural areas hmm. and, and being as modernized as they are in urban areas. Final thing I would say as far as barriers in that dilemma is public will. You know, rural areas like to preserve and protect. They're not always about progress. So you have to socialize that rural area to really think differently. For instance, I, you know, your listeners can disagree with me, but I think urban areas have the same problem, particularly mm -hmm. in under, underserved areas, meaning that, you know, this is for us, by us, nobody needs to tell us what to do. Well, that's a limited view. Like uh, we get smarter collectively. And so we can figure out who the experts we need to bring in are over the web are, but this notion that we only know how to do it because it's our context, I, I reject that on, on any level, right? Socioeconomic or others. 
So all of that being said, what are the solutions for each of those? Well, on the resource side, maybe one of your prototype is going after a grant. Maybe it's going after a public partner, public-private partnership. Maybe it's going after a venture capitalist. Maybe it's going after minority-owned businesses. But if you don't run a prototype to change your resources, how can you get more resources? Yeah. <laughs> so it's really important to be intentional about that, all right? Uh, I think on the talent side with virtual learning, why are we not bringing in talent mm. all the time? I mean, look at what you're doing with me. If you ran 20 pro podcasts with different expertise, yeah. you're certainly going to get sharper and smarter. So why aren't rural school districts doing that? Yeah. Okay. And then finally, I think on a couple of the others, I would point out that, you know, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's, um, you know, bias towards the culture, they need to trust the people and the expertise that are coming in. And that, that really takes time and you have to build a guiding coalition. You have to make it their own. Like it can't be just your ideas or Brian's mm -hmm. plan. And if this process is run right, they also can look at other rural initiatives that have been successful. And I often find they're not like going back to your other comment, who else is doing this and what can we steal from them? Right. Yeah. Well, until you have somebody pull that together for you or curate it, it's hard to learn what's working in Kansas or what's working in, you know, New York City or what's working in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's big. And I think, I think that's, you, you made that really simple, too, in a foundational way. Who, who's already doing this? And, and these are all, none of those approaches are approaches that are brand new. You're not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Grants already exist. Public and private funding already exist, but they're uncommon in, uh, or a lot of times in the education realm because we are looking from it in that box. I, I notice a, a lot of times, you know, you talk about um, in problem-based learning, they talk, talk about giving students a felt need to learn the content. You know, what is it that you can do when, when is, are you, are you reaching out actively to organizations or are they reaching out to you with the understanding that they already have this felt need. And, and I understand that might be different for the different clients that you're working with, but, but how are you helping to articulate or show that felt need to the people that you're working with? Well, I think in the empathize phase, it always starts with data, right? Like what are the pain points that they've already identified? You know, have they assessed any of the data themselves or are they practicing myths? And I think that's an important thing, right? Like uh, if you have some myths that are going on in your head, you need to have them exposed. So I'll give you a common one. You know, I, we go into universities a lot. And people say, well, we'd have more money if we'd start stop paying these administrators these high salaries. You often hear that in K-12. Okay, let's run the numbers and see if that's true. Is that where we're spending our money? Mm. Oftentimes it's, it's not. So mm. you run the actual numbers and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> we've got waste in other places, right? Yeah. And so now we've got to walk through and make that whole. I think another thing you raise is um, take uh, Arkansas and Missouri who put Wi-Fi on school buses, mm. uh, about 3,000 a piece so that devices could be accessed 45 to an hour on the way to school and 45 to an hour plus on the way home. Well, in those same school districts that there were competitors, it cost about 3000 to outfit a school bus with Wi-Fi and a combination of leased computers. Well, in same school districts that were their peers, 
they were spending another bond package to stand up a school-based computer lab. Well, mm. you know, that's just thinking differently about when they're accessing the computers, when they're happening. So a lot of times we make a lot of decisions because we read something in part or we don't look at the data behind it and we end up, you know, creating a solution for a problem that doesn't really exist. And then wow. uh, now we have to sustain that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cease. That I think that's huge. You know, that that's really big. And on, on top of that, you know, I think there's a lot of times when you'll see, what, just like what you said, schools will, will not know what the problem is, but will purchase a solution that doesn't solve your problem, but just create something else for you to manage. Is, is, do, do you, I guess the question here is, I, I like simplicity, a, a simple structure that you can follow um, with the least amount of moving parts that you can have because everybody has to wear multiple hats in, in most situations in education. Is there times when you have to go in and say, hey, you don't need this service, you don't need this device, you've got the X, Y, and Z tools that are really doing the same thing and they're not actually even solving the problem that you have. Here's, here's your problem. Yeah, two responses. I mean, I can't take credit for this statement, but it's true. Um, you know, uh, don't ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. Ask them what problems they want to solve. Mm. Okay. And that's from Jamie Kasep, who's the Google evangelist for education. But I think it's also true of us as adults. Like, let's quit asking what your next promotion is. Let's focus you on what problems need to be solved. And if you can do that well, promotions will take care of themselves. The new job opportunities will take care of themselves. So one of the things that I struggle with is I often have to go in and expose people, right? And, you know, they may have made a large purchase or they may be leading an initiative that's not effective. And so how I do that is to start with the data. What does our data say? And how can we talk about five key questions? You know, what does it tell us? What does it not? What can we celebrate? What are some opportunities for improvement? And what are the next steps? And very quickly, they get into, wow, we shouldn't have purchased that product or we shouldn't have done this. And then I advise them on, okay, well, what would a sunset process look like? If we've got five assessment product products and only three people are using it, how can we sun sunset a couple of those products and then redirect those resources to what is working? Mm -hmm. So I'll give, you a, I'll give you a tragic example from my own children. Um, <laughs> I am very familiar with Dreambox Learning and also Headsprout. One is for math competency and another one is for literacy competency, okay? Well, um, my son uh, started on both products in his kindergarten class and he was excelling, but one day we forgot his password. So when we asked him, he said, oh, you can just go in on the class password. And I was like, what do you mean the class password? password? Well, his teacher had not said individual passwords, which meant FERPA violation, right? Like mm. we're not following the rules. And then second, when I went into those environments, he was one of the only kids using the software, meaning we had this proven software that could have been improving math and literacy scores and kids didn't know how to use it. And the teacher didn't know how to train it. Wow. 
Well, that's, that's a big problem, big equity issue, right? So I worked with the principal and I'm like, look, not acceptable. Like we've got, you know, my kids will get it because they're privileged. But these other kids and their families, if you don't train the teachers and you don't train the principal on how to check and inspect for this, guess what? They're yeah. not getting the benefits. Yeah. Why, why y'all, I think that's that's so common in uh, groups. I was just working with, a, doing a session with a school, a PD session with the school the other day, and, and the administrators told me about this system that they're using to track behavior or document class action and referrals and things. But when I talked to the teachers about it, some were familiar, some were not. But a common theme was, well, we have it, but I'm not sure how to use this or how many um, notes lead to a class action, how many class actions lead to a referral. It's not necessarily a process for how to use the, the very valid and, and reliable tools that we have. Why is that so common? Well, I think people treat technology like if I just buy this computer, I, I'm, I'm comparable with my friends. If I just get this phone, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have the latest. But they don't take the time to plan and design what that technology can actually do for them. And so I, I mean this with all sincerity. If a principal purchases software like Dreambox and doesn't pay for the training, or the district does and doesn't pay for the training, I consider that malpractice, just like in the medical field. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically expending public tax funds on something you haven't designed outcomes for. So you wouldn't tolerate that from a teacher. How is that tolerated from a, an administrator who's taking care of a budget? Well, guess what? In most of their training, they've had one course on school finance. They haven't had any kind of MBA experience. They don't think like an entrepreneur or a business. They don't really, you know, get coaching or training on how to map outcomes to finances. And so that's a lot of the reason it happens. Mm, mm, mm. So, so going back to the, the statement, I don't remember the person that you quoted and um, you said, don't ask kids what they want to be, ask what problems you want to solve. My great yeah. say, don't ask me what I do, tell me what you need. What, what is the problem that you're trying to solve with the RPK group? Well, I think education is the key to our global uh, competition abilities. I think it's the key to our global collaboration abilities. And the more informed we are, the smarter, more tolerant, more focused we are on the betterment of the world, the more people that can learn, unlearn, and relearn, mm. and we're going to have a greater future. The problem is a lot of people mock people who learn or mock, uh, you know, people with degrees as the elite or the people who are making all these decisions. And in my experience, education is the ultimate weapon against ignorance and mm. cruelty and, you know, the, the future of our planet. So if we help institutions get smarter on solving the problems of today and tomorrow, then I will have done my part when I check out. Mm. And um, last, last question for me, and you've, it has not been the main topic of, of conversation, but you've alluded to it multiple times. How is the RPK group uh, bringing equity to education in your solutions? Yeah, I think we're, we're struggling. I mean, I think that 
we were a, a company founded on, you know, largely uh, white leadership that came out of white institutions. Hmm. And so we have become more diverse over time with our team and surrounding contractors, but we still have a lot to go. So when we serve clients or on projects, one of the first things that we ensure is that we have a diverse steering team on, on that campus or a diverse group of people, not just ethnically, but in terms of role, in terms of experiences. And that brings multiple voices to the table. Second, I think you have to write it out. You have to literally say equity is a goal of the design. Hmm. That we want to create different types of opportunities, and here's how we'll measure that. And we're getting better with that, but we're also running into institutionalized practices that you know, don't value that as much, and then hmm. we have to push harder as a, as a consulting firm or as an advisory firm. We've also said no to projects that didn't value it or didn't capture it, right? So I think, uh, I'll give you a recent example where we led a search for a CEO and the requirement was a diverse female. And we uh, reached out to networks like Cynthia Marshall, who was a buddy of mine in North Carolina, who's now CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, or Jesse Woolley Wilson, who's CEO African American Female at Dreambox, and said, hey, you know, we don't have these networks. Can you circulate this? Can you help so socialize this to people that might not think they're ready, but, you know, you do and you have relationships with them. So there's different ways to think about changing the odds with equity that are beyond race. Certainly, you can yeah. think about it from a resource perspective. You can think about it from, you know, gender gaps. You can think about it from, um, you know, the, the amount of capacity or access people have to to networks and social capital, for instance, you know, every board I'm on, I'm, it's a priority of mine to get that board more diverse, to get those decision makers more inclusive of the society we're in. So those would be some ways we think about it. We're not, we're far from perfect, but we're definitely grinding. Yeah. Well, well I, I definitely appreciate that. And, and that's been a larger topic of discussion, both on this podcast and I think throughout the world and, and recognize that. So I appreciate highly the work that the RPK group is doing and I'll be doing some, some more research about some of your innovative solutions and, and look forward to having some more conversations with you. For anybody that's listening, any educator or institution that's listening, what's the best way to get in contact with you personally or the RPK group? Follow me on social media. I'm all over LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, I post frequently about our practices and ideas. So does RPK Group. And then, you know, people can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always a giver when it comes to you know, moments and opportunities like this because I think we multiply and uh, spread our work through others best. And so I would encourage them to go at Brian Setzer on all those mediums and at RPK on those mediums. Gotcha. Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing, taking the time out of your day. I'm going to a baseball game to get to later. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And again, the work that you're doing. Uh, for you that's listening right now, if you like this episode, reach out to Brian. Go follow the RPK group. And I want to hear your comments. So leave a comment on whether you're listening on SoundCloud, iTunes, or TreyGamers.com. But find a way to reach out so we can continue to bridge this gap in education. Uh, thank you for listening. We will see you next time. This is The Dash.